0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm talking with Crawford Gribbon about his biography of the 17th century Protestant theologian John Owen, entitled John Owen and English Puritanism, Experiences of Defeat. Crawford, welcome to the show. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Oh well, it's great having you on the show. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Sure. I teach history
1: at Queen's University, Belfast. Uh, I mainly teach 17th century history, though I do a little bit of work in modern American religion as well. Before that, I worked in University of Manchester and Trinity College Dublin, um, and I've always been uh, employed really to teach early modern studies.
0: What led you to do a biography of John Owen?
1: John Owen, I think, is one of the most interesting figures from the 17th century. Uh, He's certainly one of the most prolific authors of that period. He wrote about 8 million words, Uh, which were published in around 80 different publications. Uh, Mainly he's remembered nowadays as a theologian or as someone who wrote in defence of religious toleration after 1660 in the the later part of his life. But in his own day he was also remembered for his um, poetry and for his preaching uh, and for his pastoral and administrative uh, work as well. During the middle of the 17th century, uh, these islands went through uh, what many historians have called a revolution uh, led by Oliver Cromwell after a series of civil wars, Uh, the new Republic, which was created in May of 1649 um, created many opportunities for individuals of often humble background who had real talents, and who could use those talents to address the new opportunities that were being created. And Owen took advantage of that situation to rise from some degree of obscurity to becoming one of the most important religious administrative figures of the period. Uh, He was vice chancellor of Oxford University. That's the most senior academic position within that university. Uh, During the 1650s, he was also involved in protracted discussions uh, about how to settle uh, the question of religion in the New Republic, So given that there was a new state, what kind of religious establishment should it support? Uh, And Owen was absolutely at the centre of those discussions. Later in life, when the revolution failed and when the monarchy was returned to England, Owen found himself in a very different kind of position um, as the leader of a tiny church of around 30 people. um, But someone who continued to write vociferously uh, and someone who created a, a very rich Uh, body of of, of writing which uh, has remained in print until the present day uh, and which now I think attracts more readers than it ever did before. So Owen is an extraordinary figure Uh, and I think one of the challenges in this book was to try to um, reduce someone of that significance, someone who'd written that much, into a manageable amount. The book I think that you mentioned is about 170,000 words long. Um, That's much longer than anything I'd done before, but it felt short actually uh, in terms of uh, its ability to capture uh, this extraordinary subject of John Owen.
0: He had this remarkable arc that you've just described, and yet you describe, his, uh, you subtitle the book Experiences of Defeat. I was wondering if, before we get into more detail about Owen's life, you, you could explain exactly what you meant by that subtitle and how that informs our understanding of John Owen.
1: I suppose, I suppose Mark, that subtitle is maybe a wee bit provocative. In that, people who've written about John Owen before, people who've written biography of John Owen, have often tended to adopt uh, a slightly hagiographical view of the subject. So they look at him very much through rose-tinted glasses. Um, they're often they're often individuals or, or authors who, who are very sympathetic to Owen's theological or religious position. Um, less often his political position, but that, that's another question. Um, and, and, and they, they tend to represent Owen in almost a romantic haze, as if somehow the age of the English Revolution, the age of the Puritan Revolution, as it used to be called, could be represented through some kind of rose-tinted romantic hue. In, in fact, I argue in this book, um, Owen's experience in life was one of perpetual disappointment, I think. Uh, defeat. Um, he was born into a religious culture uh, the culture of English Puritanism, which had already contracted after its early advances in the 16th century, uh, of course he lived through a civil war, which was devastating uh, for, for all concerned. Um, he he buried each of his children and his first wife. Uh, then he 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 committed himself to the success of a revolution, which failed. He committed himself to the prosperity and health of Puritan churches or congregations uh, and, and later in life uh, he looked at them um, almost in despair as as he realized that they had moved very far from the kinds of positions that he had spent eight million words defending. So when Owen dies in 1683 he, he dies really fearing that the, the, the entire English Reformation is about to fail because Charles II is about to give way to his brother the Duke of York who was Um, an an out-and-out Catholic uh, and it looked as if the royal family, which was the very heart and soul of uh, the English Protestant imagination, it looked as if the royal family was itself going to revert to Catholicism and with that, Owen feared the Reformation would be over. So, yes, I suppose the subtitle is a bit provocative, but it does, I think, point to uh, an enduring sense in Owen's life that, that he was continually struggling for successes that continually eluded him and i think the the, the most important cause for which um, he dedicated uh, to which he dedicated so much of his life was the cause of these puritan churches uh, and i think as they failed in the 1670s and early 1680s and as the the, the political situation changed so dramatically uh, to make possible the accession of a Catholic king, I think Owen certainly ended his life um, with very, very real concerns for the future of English Protestantism.
0: In a way, those concerns had been there from the beginning. And if you took a look, I, I was thinking, as if you took a look at the beginning of his life and at the end of his life, the concerns in some senses were, were the same. And yet to do it that way, misses the, this remarkable uh, experience of 17th century England that Owen lives firsthand. I, I wonder if you could take us back to his uh, his background, his childhood, and, and explain a bit uh, who he was and, and how he came to embark upon this career as a theologian and as a minister.
1: Sure. Well, Owen was born in 1616. We don't know exactly when, but 1616 is 99 years after Luther posted his 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, an event which, um, as your interview with Peter Marshall a couple of weeks ago indicated, is often thought to, 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 to indicate the beginning uh, of the Protestant Reformation. So Owen was born 99 years after that event. Um, and those 99 years had been quite dramatic in terms of English uh, religion and religious politics partly because the English Reformation had been advanced on a very ambiguous basis. So under the Tudors, the Church of England changed its doctrine, but not its style. So it still looked uh, very much like the traditional um, parish worship that uh, parishioners would have recognised from before the Reformation, even as the ideas which were being preached often changed quite dramatically. Now, this was thought to be a middle way, Um, Queen Elizabeth promoted this as a middle way between two extremes. But for many of uh, what historians call the hotter sort of English Protestants, um, this was deeply unsatisfactory. They wanted to see the Church of England changed Mm -hmm. so that its style, its its liturgy, um, the use of a prayer book, um, the use of certain kinds of clothing uh, for priests, uh, and even the identification of clergy as priests, they wanted all of these things to change and to become much closer to the model they saw being adopted by John Calvin in Geneva. And so uh, this group of of hot Protestants began to push and cajole for uh, what they called further reformation of the English Church. They were nicknamed Puritans. And initially under Queen Elizabeth, they they seemed to do quite well. They seemed to um, carry some momentum uh, with them as they made their arguments. Uh, But whenever James VI of Scotland Followed Elizabeth to the throne of England. Whenever James uh, acceded to the English throne, uh, Puritan hopes were raised and almost immediately dashed. They were raised because James was well known to be a Presbyterian theologian. He'd, he'd published a number of theological works. Um, you know, he, he, he was a tra- he was a theologically trained monarch who'd who'd grown up in a Presbyterian system that English Puritans recognised to be quite similar to what they wanted to achieve. Um, so Puritan hopes were raised, but they were immediately dashed because no sooner had James made it south across the border than he realised that the Episcopal system of the Church of England, the system of government by bishops within the Church of England, which was quite different to the much more democratic Presbyterian system north of the border, James realised that this system of government by bishops actually reinforced the power of the king. Uh, and so he famously declared no bishop, no king, uh, and swept aside the Uh, the many uh, demands that the Puritans were making of him to pursue the further reformation of the English Church. So by about 1604, 1605, English Puritans really felt that they had been suddenly outmanoeuvred, and that by the monarch. And so in 1605, um, an individual, a Church of England clergyman called William Bradshaw, published a book called English Puritanism. And Bradshaw's book, English Puritanism, was something of a manifesto. It it suggested ways by which the godly, the the hotter Protestants could continue to work together to to build uh, relationships, networks, communities, uh, to sustain fellowship as the English Puritan movement entered into Eclipse. So that's very much the the background to uh, Owens, uh, Owen's birth in 1616. He was born into a family, the father of which was a Church of England minister, so someone who probably had Bradshaw's, uh, concerns and hopes about the suspension of this Puritan subculture within the English Church. Uh, unlike lots of other uh, Puritans, Henry Owen, who was John Owen's father, had not emigrated. He hadn't gone to the New World, he hadn't gone into the Netherlands. He had chosen to stay within the Church of England to eke out some kind of ambiguous and probably fairly precarious uh, parish career. Um, So whenever Owen was born, John Owen was born in 1616, uh, that was the kind of family he was born into, a clerical family, uh, the family of a Church of England clergyman, but a Church of England clergyman who was doing his best to retain something of the older Puritan um, sensibility within uh, the politically ambiguous um, cultures of the Church of England.
0: One of the things you make clear in the book is how difficult it is to access John Owen's life. And one of the things you do in it is you, you draw upon his writings to get a better understanding of it. And this is something that uh, it, you uh, note is, is a little different than how previous biographers have approached John Owen. I was wondering if you could explain that approach a bit and, and how it informs our understanding of, of Owen's life. Sure. Well,
1: people who've written about Owen in the past tend to do so under two headings. Uh, first of all, there's, there's quite a considerable body of high historical theology, um, which, which takes Owen as its subject. Now, many of the people who write this historical theology tend to adopt fairly old-fashioned views of the subject, so that they tend to take ideas somewhat outside of context, that uh, they tend to represent ideas as operating Um, almost autonomously within the world of ideas, as if there can be a rarefied world of ideas. Uh, And so much of this historical theological writing is very, very helpful in showing how Owen relates to perhaps the bigger Reformed context or perhaps the legacy of the the, the pre-Reformation church and medieval scholastic theology. But it doesn't do a good job of situating Owen's ideas within the changing context of his own life. Uh, The other um group of publications um, which takes Owen as its subject tends to adopt this biographical view. There hasn't been much written in terms of Owen biography in the last 30 years. Um, one One very exciting exception to that uh, is Tim Cooper's book on John Owen, Richard Baxter, and the formation of nonconformity, which came out, I think, around 2009. Now, Tim Tim Cooper, who teaches history at the University of Otago, showed in this book how uh, a very particular focus on one decade of a very troubled relationship between Owen and Richard Baxter, uh, these two um, theological giants of the English Puritan movement who took very different views of many of the issues that were being debated during this period, uh, Tim Cooper showed that this very specific focus on a decade or a couple of decades of their life and their very tricky friendship could yield extraordinary dividends when uh, historians read theological writing with biographical questions in view. And really what I try to do in this book is to take Tim's method uh, and apply it much less ambitiously uh, just to one individual but to do that uh, across the course of that one individual's life. So Tim, I think, has really set up a a new way of thinking about biography and how biography can work uh, when um, the material of biography is lost or where the only material available for biography is uh, text, the genre of which may be deeply unsympathetic uh, to to biographical work. And so uh, for this project, I I set about to read Poe's works in chronological order and thinking about context, if he was engaging in debates, trying to reconstruct those debates in my own head and trying to look at manuscript sources, trying to get a, a richer, fuller sense of the material circumstances, uh, as well as the ideological or theological circumstances in which Owen was was composing his work. Um, and that that's what I tried to do. So, yeah, it's, it's new. Uh, in the sense that it's developing Tim Cooper's method. It's much less geared towards historical theology than um, so much of the really excellent work that's been published in Owen um, does. But hopefully it still got something to add to that conversation.
0: That approach of, is a bit more frustrated when you're talking about those early years because he doesn't start writing until he's in his... Uh, late 20s, early 30s. I was wondering if you could explain a bit what we do know about his uh, education and his early theological development before you get to when he starts publishing books in the 1640s.
1: Yeah. Well, it seems as if Owen uh, grew up in in the home of this moderate Puritan, Henry Owen, uh, his father. And it seems as if Henry Owen sent Owen to the University of Oxford which was not that far away from where the family was living, less than 10 miles away or thereabouts. Um, John Owen went in his very early teens, along with his his elder brother, to begin studies at Queen's College in Oxford. But these these teenagers found themselves, as they began their undergraduate study, in the middle of a theological war, because Queen's College in Oxford had gone through its own religious revolution. Uh, Like the university of which it was a part, it had been pushed, away from the explicit Reformation emphases uh, of the college as it it had developed through the later 16th and early 17th century. And under the leadership of a new provost, uh, a man called Christopher Potter, Queen's College had begun to to move in uh, quite a a strikingly new direction. Now, this new direction was uh, in, in some ways reflecting that of the church of england as a whole because one of one of the one of the decisions taken by king james in his later years uh, and by charles his son in the early years of his reign was to promote not the old calvinism not not not, not the explicitly uh, reformed theology that had characterized so much of the 16th century um, english reformation but a new style of theology a style of theology known as arminianism Uh, after um, its celebrated um, intellectual leader, a man called Jacob Arminius, a a Dutch theologian. But this Arminianism wasn't just a set of ideas, although it was a set of ideas. It also involved a a new way of thinking about worship uh, and a new way of thinking about the history of the English church. So in a a typical Calvinist service, for example, um, the emphasis would have been on the sermon, and in teaching through the sermon. Um, In in an Arminian-influenced service of worship, the emphasis would have been much less on the sermon than upon sacraments. Um, Arminians were also pushing for altars uh, to be reintroduced into English churches. They were pushing for clergymen to be dressed in certain kinds of of, um, decorative clothing, liturgically significant clothing, Uh, And and I think most importantly of all, they also wanted English churchmen to rethink their relationship to the Catholic Church. Um, Whereas the older Calvinists had wanted to see the Reformation as very much a break uh, with um, the unreformed medieval Christianity they associated with the Catholic Church, the Arminians wanted to see continuity as far as possible. Now, within Queen's College, uh, these very rarefied debates about ideas of of theology and about the practicalities of worship um, took on a very divisive form because the faculty split um, over this issue um, of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And in fact, there's records from this period describing um, faculty members threatening to stab each other uh, as the debate intensified. So there was a real threat of violence uh, within the college. And it must have been a very disorientating experience for this young teenager, uh, John Owen, as he learned through through the study of the curriculum uh, and also as he tried to find his own way both within the university and within uh, the Church of England because Owen had gone to Oxford to prepare to become a clergyman uh, within the Church of England. By 1632, he'd taken his BA and he'd been ordained as a deacon by the Bishop of Oxford, uh, John Bancroft, who was one of the individuals best known for promoting this new liturgical and theological style. In 1635, he took his MA, and in 1637, he decided he had to leave the university. Had he stayed, he would have had to have signed up to the liturgical and theological changes that were taking place, but he couldn't do that. And so at the age of 21, he decided his academic career was essentially over, um, he, he, he felt that he had been shut out of the English church uh, and he left and began a period of, of some depression. Now, it's, it's not quite clear um, what was behind that depression. Certainly in 1638, Owen found his way back to the Bishop of Oxford to be ordained as a priest. And I, th- I think it's very tempting to speculate that his depression was linked both to his sense of, of failure, his sense of being excluded from the career that he had chosen to pursue, but also I think his sense that the only way in which he could pursue that career was by uh, recognising the legitimacy of the authority of church leaders who were doing their utmost, he might have thought, to reverse the Protestant Reformation and to take England back to Rome. So by the time Owen um, gets ordained as a a priest in 1638, um, he, he begins to pursue a, a private clerical career. In other words, he doesn't become a parish clergyman, but he takes up a chaplaincy position in the home of Sir Robert Dormer and later in the home of John Lord Lovelace. It's really interesting to, to, to think why he did that, because uh, both Robert Dormer and John Lord Lovelace um, indicated that or, or, or uh, that, that their lives uh, were certainly not the lives of eminent Puritans, and when civil war broke out in August 1642, both those individuals chose to side with the king rather than with uh, rather than with Parliament. Owen, by contrast, had decided to move with Parliament, and so he gets shut out uh, of employment in 1642 as well. Moves to London, gets some lodgings in Charterhouse, which is one of the most notorious. Parts of the city at that at that, at that uh, period of time um, experiences something like conversion, and begins to write, and that's really when the recoverable John Owen begins.
0: You describe how, in his uh, early years uh, entering the ministry, he had turned to people like Dormer and, and, and Loveless. and 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 this. Or, And this gets to one of these points you make in the book, which is that a lot of his career uh, was intertwined with patronage and how he had these patrons – Who played a very important role in not only supporting him but bringing him to broader attention and this is something that you uh, see especially as you describe during the English Civil War. Uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, uh, explain a bit what he does during the war and and how he comes to assume such a position of prominence by the end of it.
1: Sure. Um, At the beginning of the Civil War, uh, Owen's really a a non-entity uh, living in London. But he, he begins to publish books and he, he he makes a very calculated decision to dedicate his books to people who can do him good. And he publishes his first book, A Display of Romanianism, uh, as it was called, a long book of theological polemic, um, which he dedicates to a committee operating with the House of Commons that was in charge of allocating parish ministries. And it works. Uh, he comes to the attention of this committee and they appoint him to his first parish uh, in Essex. Now, we know quite a lot about what this parish was like, uh, as well as the next parish that Owen went to, which was a neighbouring parish, partly because um, his next door neighbour, uh, in, in parish terms, a man called Ralph Josselin, a Presbyterian clergyman, kept a voluminous diary of this period. And, and so we, we get a real sense of what it was like on the ground to watch Owen pursue patronage, the patronage of local landowners uh, or, or the patronage of significant people in the locality who could in some way do him good. Now, by 1648, at the close, uh, at the, the, the middle part of the Second Civil War, uh, Owen takes his pursuit of patronage to a new degree because there was a big siege uh, at the town of Colchester, about 10 miles away from where Owen was based at that point. Uh, what happened was that uh, a column of, of royalist troops had had kidnapped a couple of local politicians and they had taken these politicians into Colchester, which was a walled town, uh, without really having thought about how uh, their being in Colchester could be sustained in the longer term. Uh, The city was easily surrounded, was easily cut off from the sea, um, it was easily cut off in terms of supply. And so Fairfax, General uh, Sir Thomas Fairfax, led the parliamentary army, the new model army, Uh, in pursuit of this column of royalist soldiers with their local political hostages uh, into Colchester. They dug trenches around the city uh, and and for about 10 weeks that summer, July and August of 1648, uh, they pursued a siege of the town. Now, it was a really brutal uh, and and dangerous siege and there's reports from from the period uh, of both the besieged and the besiegers setting animals on fire in an effort to disrupt Uh, the the, the lines uh, of their antagonists. Uh, Owen took advantage of this to some extent by by going down to Colchester, by preaching to the soldiers, by befriending the hostages after Fairfax eventually released them. Uh, And then uh, in in the autumn and winter of 1648, coming to the attention not just of General Fairfax, the leader of the New Model Army, the Parliamentary Army, but also to one of his most significant friends, uh, a man called Oliver Cromwell. Now, uh, why why this is significant is that several weeks, um, probably around early December, mid-December 1648, Owen was invited to preach to MPs in what was a a fairly standard uh, kind of religious service in the 1640s. But what no one could have reckoned at that point was that the date, for the, the date which uh, the, the invitation had given to Owen to travel to Westminster to preach to the MPs, was the day, or rather, would be the day after the execution of the King Charles I. In other words, you could say it was England's very first day as republic. At the end of January sixteen forty nine, and um, Owen preached this commemorative sermon um, to MPs describing in providential terms what had just happened and explaining to them how the execution of the king was actually part of God's plan for the nations uh, at the end of time. And so this this very uh, robust defence of parliamentary action uh, in um, executing the king uh, saw Owen become ever more closely identified with his new patron, Oliver Cromwell, who in the months after January 1649 would come to be the most significant leader of the Republican Party uh, as that new regime took shape in the aftermath of the Second Civil War.
0: You point out it wasn't just Cromwell who was impressed by his sermon, that that Parliament invited him back to preach during the next fast day. So he they they generally responded very well to what he was saying and he re- is receiving that support. Although, as you point out, you know, it really is difficult to find in 1649 a a, a better patron in, England, in all of England than Oliver Cromwell.
1: That's right. Cromwell opens up a huge number of opportunities for Owen, uh, and it becomes the most significant and also one of the most problematic of Owen's relationships in the 1650s. So uh, one of the one of the most um, important invitations that, that Cromwell gives to Owen is to invite Owen or actually compel Owen uh, to attend the invasion of Ireland in 1649. Uh, so Cromwell led a, a column of I think around 18,000 troops, uh, which landed in Dublin in August 1649, uh, which divided into two and which swept up and down the east coast of Ireland uh, and then into the centre of the island in an effort to subjugate. Um, The the, the royalist uh, defence that remained on that island. And in fact, in nine months, the Cromwellian army achieved what no English army had ever before achieved in in Ireland, which was to completely subdue the island to English political um, achievements. One year later, uh, Owen also accompanied the army in its invasion of Scotland. That was a uh, a much uh, a, 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 a quite different uh, experience of invasion. Uh, and I think also he was horrified by some of the things that he had witnessed during the invasion of Ireland. And he spoke quite um, movingly, actually, about the horrors that he had seen uh, on the streets of Dublin. Now, of course, uh, by 1650, by 1651, two of his brothers had also seen military action in Ireland and one of them had died there. So... Owen himself had begun to be touched by the reality of revolution. Before, perhaps, it had been something he could preach about. By about 1650-51, it was something he'd begun to experience personally. And as he experienced it personally, he retreated somewhat from the high theological defence of the English Republican agenda, and I think began to nuance his view of Cromwell and of the Cromwellian regime, partly because the Cromwellian regime was growing more socially conservative, but also, someone like Owen might have thought, it was moving further away from the godly ideals that many of the Puritans uh, had referred to in their early defences of this new regime.
0: This nuanced approach that you described, though, didn't... Inhibit his rise because it was after his return that he is appointed the dean of Christchurch and assumes a role in the administration of the University of Oxford.
1: That's right. So it's only about what thirteen, fourteen years after Owen had left Oxford in despair of any future academic career there, that he's invited to come back. First of all, as dean of a college, uh, Christchurch, and then in 1652 to become vice chancellor of the entire university the most senior academic position uh, that there is there. But I think Owen seems to have struggled at Oxford, I think partly because nothing had prepared him to take up such a senior administrative position. When he had preached to soldiers en route to uh, war in Ireland or when he had preached to soldiers who were actually on the field uh, during the Scottish invasion, he was able to present... um, He was able to present issues in in, in very uh, morally binary ways. Things were very black and white for him. But, you know, faculty politics are never black and white. They're very (laughs) um,
0: important.
1: But but threatening in in, in a different kind of way. And uh, Owen seems really to have struggled with the emergence of academic parties within Oxford and used sometimes high-handed methods to get around them and sometimes very devious ways to get around them. Uh, one of the things that Owen did whenever he wanted to push through a particular resolution was to make sure that the committee, considering that resolution, met on the 25th of December, knowing that the Conservatives who sat in that committee would far rather be home eating their turkey dinner and celebrating Christmas than sitting at a table uh, with his grim and glowering Puritan disposition. Uh, so, you know, he was up to all kinds of tricks at Oxford, tr- trying to get certain kinds of reforms pushed through. Uh, he was he was largely successful. Uh, Oxford seems to have been a relatively harmonious place uh, during his tenure as vice chancellor. Um, certainly he worked hard during that period actually to protect people who had different politics from his own or who had a slightly different theology from his own on the basis that they were excellent scholars. And so I think historians argue that that he, he did have the, the health of the university. Uh, at the forefront of his mind that his reformation of Oxford was very much geared towards academic standards rather than some kind of ideological or religious purity. Uh, I think that's a very significant uh, nuance uh, in his own um, understanding of, of his role within that place, uh, that there were there were times when he was prepared not to push individuals out of the way uh, because they happened to have a much warmer view of the old Church of England than he had done.
0: This really represented in many respects the peak of his life, not just in terms of his position as vice Chancellor, but also that his patron uh, Oliver Cromwell becomes Lord Protector of England and in, in effect the ruler of England. And yet because he's so his fortunes and his success are so closely tied to the revolution in Oliver Cromwell, once Oliver Cromwell dies in 1658, that is going to portend a change. How does Owen's life change with Cromwell's passing and then the restoration that follows?
1: Well, I said earlier on, Mark, that that, uh, Owen's relationship to Cromwell becomes difficult in the 1650s. And it's tricky to work out exactly when that difficulty is introduced. I think... I think that that's partly because Owen's own position changes. Uh, Owen is a writer, in his eight million words, who can tell you different things or give different explanations, sometimes conflicting exp- explanations for the same events. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, in the first Protectoral Parliament in 1654, uh, the first parliament which was convened after Oliver Cromwell became uh, the Lord Protector of England, uh, Owen was elected as an MP. and he only sat as an MP for about three or four months. He was eventually ejected um, on the basis that his being in orders, his having been ordained, actually made him ineligible to stand as a a Member of Parliament. But during those three or four months when Owen sat as an MP in the first Protectoral Parliament, uh, there's hints in the documentary record that he was socialising with or spending time with individuals who were very, very hostile to this new turn in the administration. The the, the years from sixteen forty nine to fifty three were, were seen by by many individuals as the golden years of the republic. The move to the recognition of a single leader as a figurehead for the nation, as the Lord Protector was, that move which happened in sixteen fifty four was seen by these individuals as somehow a, a, a backsliding away from the attainments of the earlier years of the Republic. And Owen, as an MP, identifies with critics of the Protectorate. Now, he still depends upon Owen for, sorry, Owen still depends upon Cromwell to be sustained as Vice-Chancellor of Oxford, for example. And that relationship continues until about 1656-57, when Owen begins to give these coded criticisms uh, of some of the, the happenings within the Lord Protector's household The Lord Protector's household had begun to sponsor dances, operatic entertainment. It was looking more and more like a royal family in the making. And in fact, in 1657, there was an attempt by many MPs representing a a very socially conservative uh, constituency to have the Cromwell family become the new royal family of England. And Cromwell himself seems to have recognised that, in fact, this might be one way of solidifying and stabilising the new regime. But this was a a horror to the old Republicans who were closely identified with Owen. And so many military officers, number of military officers associated with General Charles Fleetwood, who was Cromwell's brother-in-law, worked together with Owen to create a a petition. Uh, Owen actually wrote the petition for them. Uh, The petition argued that Cromwell should not accept the throne, should not become king, King Oliver I. And the military officers presented this to Cromwell and argued with him to make sure that, that he didn't, in fact, accept the throne. And this seems to have been a turning point in um, Cromwell's view of Owen. If Owen was already suspicious of Cromwell, by 1657, Cromwell had become very suspicious of Owen. And in fact, uh, the relationship cools noticeably from that period. And Owen doesn't see Cromwell in the months before Cromwell's death in early September 1658. When Oliver Cromwell dies on the 3rd of September 1658, he is followed by his son, Richard, who becomes the new Lord Protector. But Richard has none of his father's diplomatic skill or links to the military, and so simply isn't trusted uh, or isn't thought to be able for the position into which he's been intruded. And so Cromwell, Fleetwood, and that familiar group of Republican officers work together to create a political crisis which brings down Richard's... Um, lord protectorship. Uh, The Republicans hope to see Richard replaced with a a, a much more Republican friendly parliament. In fact, that doesn't happen. And uh, the, the only achievement of their coup is to knock down the first of a chain of dominoes, which eventually ends up two years later with the return of Charles II to the throne of England. So in some ways, Owen is there at the very beginning of the Republic. He preaches the day after the execution of Charles I. Owen is also there at the very end of the Republic. Um, He is the individual, perhaps, who takes the most significant role in creating the conditions through which Richard falls. And I suppose the great paradox of this period of Owen's life is that he creates the conditions for the restoration. He actually facilitates, um, without realising it, the return of the king.
0: A lot of the people who were involved with the regime, and particularly the, the execution of, of Charles, were executed themselves or driven into exile. How is it that Owen is able to survive?
1: Yeah, they, they, they were treated, um, they, they, they were tracked down, the regicides were tracked down, and um, some were kidnapped, some were arrested, some were murdered in England or abroad. Uh, When Charles II returned to the throne, he had, in effect, a death list, a hit list, uh, of the names of individuals who had signed his father's death warrant. Uh, A few months after his uh, coming back to the throne, uh, an election was held for a new parliament. And the the Cavalier Parliament, which convened in 1661, uh, represented a, a, a community with much greater hostility to the Republicans than even perhaps... Uh, Charles Charles II uh, and so the hit list grew and it grew and grew um, it's not quite clear why Owen was not among the victims uh, other men like Hugh Peter who was not a regicide, who had not signed the death warrant but who had preached in defence of the king's death was among those who were hunted down and um, hung drawn and eventually cut into quarters, beheaded with body parts and display for 25 years after the event. So it's not quite clear why, if Hugh Peter was tracked down and destroyed in that way, why Owen was not. It's possible that patronage came into view again, because we know in this period that Owen was living in the houses of various and sometimes surprising and highly placed individuals including for example the Earl of Oxford who had spent time in the Tower of London in the 1650s because of his subversive royalist politics but now Owen was looking to people like the Earl of, royalist, the, the, the Earl of Oxford for protection and was getting protection uh, from some of these individuals. It's also possible that the Earl of Clarendon uh, was commissioning Owen to write on his behalf uh, there's a, a couple of books published anonymously but we know by Owen In the early 1660s, in which he writes very fulsomely of Charles II. And it's possible that what's behind this is manipulation on the part of the Earl of Clarendon. Uh, We know that Clarendon was going around and exploiting even some of his old friends in this period, um, giving them protection on the basis of favours, sometimes financial favours, sometimes perhaps, as in Owen's case, uh, ideological or artistic favours. Owen however he did it was surviving. Um, I I think he really struggled to know how to relate to the restoration. Um, He seems to have attempted to buy land in New England. He had certainly been invited to Boston by a church there. He'd been invited to an academic position at Harvard and he took those invitations seriously, seriously enough to attempt to buy some land in Massachusetts. That came to nothing. Uh, He he was also amassing weapons in his own house. In fact, in 1661, uh, his house was raided and several several sets of pistols, I think six or seven pairs of pistols were confiscated. This was during a time in which uh, ex-Republicans or or old Republicans, I should say, uh, were being suspected of uh, attempts at insurrection, actually suspected with good reason because there were several attempts to reverse the restoration uh, during this period. So Owen was both attempting to escape uh, the Restoration, attempting to resist the Reformation. He was also, in some senses, defending it, speaking very highly of Charles II, describing him in a couple of books as the greatest Protestant and the greatest potentate in the whole of Europe, which is an extraordinary claim, if you know anything about the king's private life uh, or religious <laughs> differences. Uh, and I think Owen you know, just didn't know, just didn't know how to respond. And so responds, um, perhaps seeing his friend's, Horrible deaths responds in in a confused and chaotic way, doing his utmost. Whatever he does, doing his utmost to survive, to protect himself, to protect his family, and I suppose hopefully uh, to, to to protect the churches of which he was a part.
0: That ends a certain. That adds a certain melancholy to to that the that last two plus decades of his life, where. He has fallen from favor. He's no longer the vice chancellor of Oxford. He is fortunate, as you were describing, to to have uh, escaped with 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 his life, and and so he's witness to all of the events that happened that follow that uh, seem to unravel it. And and you describe not and the, add to that you, the the personal tragedies with uh, you know the, the loss of his children, the loss of his wife. How does he process that in his writings? Because you described that that he's still producing uh considerable uh uh you know works of of, of theology and, and and considerable commentary that that's some of the most uh, significant works of his career.
1: Yeah, it's a good question, Mark. how did he process it all? Um Owen seems to have been a deeply private individual. He doesn't write confessionally, he doesn't write Um, self-reflection. He doesn't write letters, as far as we know, that describe in detail his emotional response to these things. He hasn't left behind him any personal papers which would describe um, the way in which he responded to these things, at least not as far as we know. Perhaps the only glimpse we can get into Owen's response to these events is to compare uh, two portraits. A portrait of him uh, recently rediscovered in Dr. William's library uh, this actually is the portrait in the front of the book on, on, on the hardback uh, cover of the book, a portrait of Owen in the middle 1650s in his Oxford regalia, looking very well fed, very well watered. Uh, he's a man of substance uh, and girth, um, obviously um, a, a man of power. The way in which he's dressed, with academic robes, certain kinds of gloves, his hand is in the book. You know, he, he looks he looks successful. He looks self satisfied. There's another portrait taken of Owen in 1667. So this is about 10 years later and on the other side of the restoration. And it's a, it's the most famous portrait of Owen. It's essentially black and white. Um, he's dressed in black. He's got a white shirt on. He's got a black skull cap on. His face is very pale. His face is very thin. He looks haunted. Um, of course, you, you, you don't want to psychologise someone's representation uh, of their subject in a painting. But it's very striking to see uh, the difference in, in physiognomy uh, between these two portraits. One looks drawn, perhaps even scared, uh, in his response.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Sure. Uh, it's totally different, Mark. It's not 17th century at all. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a project about um, a modern religious community which is gathering in North Idaho, which may be up to 10,000 people strong, uh, which is very interested in the kind of theology that Owen is, is describing and, and, and defending in his books, uh, but which is also interested in ideas of resistance, resistance to American modernity. Uh, so this is a book called Survival and Resistance in American ev- uh, in Evangelical America, and I'm co-writing it with my friend at University of Glasgow called Scott Spurlock, um, hopefully that'll come out within the next year or two.
0: That sounds like a fascinating book. I look forward to reading it. I'll talk to you then. <laughs> Crawford, thank you very much for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks, Mark. Great to talk to you too.